Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where the host and guests discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience as a field, and share our members' stories. Welcome back, everybody, for this special edition, this off-week publishing of the Turkey Hall All Access podcast, official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. This week, this is our second installment of the 12th National Wild Turkey Symposium. We're going to bring you conversations from folks, uh, the likes of Pat Dorsey and Brian Wakeland, uh, Annie Farrell and Brett Collier, uh, Matt Gonerman and Matt DeBona out of Maine, John Burke, Michael Byron, Ricky Lackey, Nicholas Baker, Guys, all that and more. 90 seconds. Let's go. Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer. Follow the link. Go through that link to get the organizer with your membership. Do it now. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. Technically, day three of the 12th National Wild Turkey Symposium down here in Asheville, North Carolina. Yesterday, everybody uh, mostly went out for a, a fantastic field trip. I I got the uh, the download on it late last night and saw some of the pictures. So it looks like a really great time. But we're here day three, more presentations uh, joined by Pat Dorsey, Director of Conservation in the West for NWTF and Brian Wakeling. Did I say it right? You said it right. Very good. Uh, Montana Fish. Wildlife and parks, correct. Very good. They're all so very different, and uh, you got either DNRs or where I'm at, it's fishing game. <laughs> so try to try to pay respect and get it all right. Everybody uh, takes pride in their their home shop. So, what are we talking about this morning with big doings in Montana? Well, yeah, and this is great because we're here in the heart of the Appalachians, and we want to talk a little bit about turkeys in the West. Yeah. And so Brian's presentation this morning was very well done and very humorous, by the way, which was fantastic, breaks it up a little bit. But um, we want to talk a little bit about what makes the West different. And I don't know, maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, we can sure start there and <clears throat> see where it takes us. Um so when you think about the West, I mean, most people think about the West being wide open spaces, um, 
you know, a lot of critters, few people. And I think what really, um, when you start thinking about that, um, some perceptions are accurate in some places and they're not so accurate in other places. Um, a lot of times we talk about what's different in the West, but often there's as much difference within the West as there is between West and East. Um, there's some places within the West uh, where there's, you know, Montana, everybody thinks about Montana being a huge public land state. It, two thirds of the state is actually private. And when you start trying to get access and be able to hunt and, and participate in different places, uh, that can be a real challenge. Um, we're also incredibly dependent upon private landowners to provide that habitat. And that's not something that's too indifferent from the east. Um, other states, places like Arizona, Nevada, um, you know, huge public land states. Um, and most people don't think of those as being urban states, but they are in the top 5% of all urban states. We're defining that by people that live in mid to large size cities. Mm. Their population is very urban. And so you see differences in the people and you see differences in the wildlife and how wildlife use and people use uh, the, the habitat across there. You know, and, and in your career, you've been the chief of wildlife for Arizona and the chief of wildlife for Montana, Nevada, a couple of other states. So you have a lot of experience. But um, even among those states, even though the habitat is vastly different, you mentioned about the management needing to be different, too, because of the just the difference in people, the difference in hunting systems, that kind of thing. I don't know if you want to talk about that. First. Yeah, you bet. You know, it's it is really uh, challenging, um, you know, talking about the, you know, number one, looking at the abundance of turkeys. Um, Nevada thought. You know, the best estimates they can come up with is probably somewhere around 1,400 birds in the entire state. Hmm. Um, now you go to Montana and we have almost two orders of magnitude greater. 120,000 is the best estimate that we have right now. And and so they're, they're vastly different uh, numbers. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, Nevada having about 113,000 square miles uh, within the state. Uh, Montana's about 148, 149,000. So, you know, not dramatically, they, they are different in size, but they're both big. And um, you have, you know, really different abundance, different habitat. And when you start to look at, you know, People want to look at, you know, what's the harvest like? What, how many people participate? And things like license structures, your ability to, and your access to, to hunting opportunities really make that difficult for agencies to measure. In Nevada, it's relatively precise. Um, there's a, about 100 tags that they offer every year. You have to get drawn for it. There's mandatory reporting. You know, they know how many people, you know, they know virtually everything about everybody that hunted. You look at a place like Montana, you can harvest 11 turkeys a year. If you fill every tag you can possibly get and willing to travel around, you can kill two on the same day. You know, it, and you start trying to figure out, well, how much effort do you spend to harvest a turkey? And it really becomes a very different dynamic, a very different uh, way of thing. And so the habitat's different. The social issues are different. The land ownership is different. And it, it's just dramatically different when you try to just get something simple. You ask a question, you think it's a dichotomous answer, and it rarely is. 
the birds in Montana. I learned this firsthand this past spring. You know, I I was always told coming from the east that you know you want to you want a chip shot, go hunt Marions in the mountains, and that's not true. It's not a chip shot, and all those birds know how to do is survive in that that environment. And let's face it, most of it's not very accommodating. As you know, you look at the landscape in the east and then the south, and you think that's turkey real estate, right? Um, and Man, golly, do they just, they just blend in? They like they could be ten meters in front of you, and you can't see them because of their plumage. I never realized how that plumage worked until I was in their space. I was like, wow, they just they just disappear right in front of you, um, and they don't they don't act like. I don't know. For me, they don't act like turkeys that are supposed to act in a mountain climbing and billy goat chasing them. And, and we said it yesterday, uh, talking to Dr. Collier that, you know, mountain birds, if you're not ahead of them, just forget it because you're going to spend all day chasing and they're going to beat you all day. Yeah, it's an awful lot like trying to chase down a caribou, you know, once yeah. they get out in front of you, you'll never catch up. But, um, you know, you, you'd mentioned... Um, you know, how, how different the experience can be. I mean, last year, um, it was, uh, you know, hunting in the spring, hunting with, uh, uh Colin Smith, uh, one of your uh, regional directors. And, uh, inside of a week, you know, we, we harvested probably, I think there were three birds we harvested inside of a week and mm -hmm. two separate trips. I mean, it wasn't like we were hunting hard every day this year. Um, you know, a friend of mine went out, with me and uh, we spent a solid week out there and uh, we couldn't even get the turkeys to cooperate. You know, we'd been in a place, you know, for two days, hadn't heard a bird gobble. And then it was on the last evening that we were there. We had 15 different gobblers in the exact same place we had just been. And all of a sudden they just decided to get vocal. As far as quality of hunt goes, I mean, we were never not in birds. And, and, and I'm talking to people that live out there and are in your space like that's Again, going back to quality of hunt with, as hunters, what we on the landscape, we like to hear the vocalizations. We like to see them. And there's no shortage of that. You just it's a different game and you got to figure out how to hunt them. I was uh, in camp with Jason Matzinger out there in Montana. He does this real special wall tent turkey hunt. And uh, they were you know recalling the 11 plus years they've been doing this tradition that the first few years, I don't think they killed anything. And then it was if you killed one or two in the full week, like you were on to it. And what they surmised was that it was just learning the birds and learning how to hunt uh, as opposed to these traditional methods that, you know, many of us are reading books and they're all just very regional specific. And that that's true. I mean, if you're if you're skipping states and going among yeah. states and things, um, you know, turkeys are turkeys. You know, they, they do some things very similarly, but. You know, stating, you know, what you stated about the importance of learning the, the, the local behaviors, mm. the local habitat, where you can go, what's dependable. Um, that that is huge. If you spend time in one place and you get used to that place, um, you know, you you learn a lot about it. And uh, it's not something you can. You no, know, you can't fake it. You, no, you can exactly get lucky, right. but you can't be consistent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, too, that area is so um challenging again from, from a fellow coming from the east is that your land use laws and then you you touched on it in the beginning of this was that you have some that is is public you have some that is private then you have this private holding but there's incentives built in uh, back east in new hampshire we call it uh, in current use there's different levels of it they're getting tax breaks the landowners in these big track of lands as long as they allow people to come out and outdoor recreate montana i don't know if it's i don't think it's called that but it 
sounds like there might be some uh, incentives for large track landowners to allow recreating and people just be able to come out. That's where that's how I was able to hunt where I did uh, that first part of the week in Montana. Um, and that's really neat. But doing your homework as a traveling turkey hunter, I, even if you're a new resident, there's so much uh, immigration to uh, Montana and Idaho and in these places out West where people are leaving metropolitan, uh, areas of the last two years, COVID years, they're, they're tired of being in the concrete jungles. They want to go to the, the wild. It's a completely different world and you got to know what you're getting into. You just can't go walking on, on land. I heard it referenced at the beginning of the symposium that maybe, uh, apps like Onyx and, you know, HuntStand may be cheating in a way. <laughs> But it's almost necessary that you have it for out there because if you don't have those tools, you can get jammed up. Well, and and you also wind up stepping on the toes of the landowners that you really want to respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some landowners, I mean, Montana's got some some huge public um, cooperation plans out there. Our best one known is uh, the block management program. Mm-hmm. And Block management uh, provides an incentive to landowners, some compensation for allowing hunters on there. They can choose to be, you know, uh, what we call a type one, which is you just go to the box, sign in, you can get access. Or it could be a type two where, you know, you need they, they want to limit the number of people right. that are out there. And understandably, you know, so and they also want to know who's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not the only land management programs that we have. We have a huge number of access ones, and I can't even begin to list them all off today. And we're continuing to explore more. That's something that our director continues to work with our legislature and our governor's office to try to keep improving on that. But in places like Arizona, if you have a private landowner and you have private land and you do not post it, there is no penalty to a hunter or anybody else that steps onto your land. It wasn't legally posted. Mm-hmm. Montana, yeah, that's not the case. Right. It cannot be posted. It cannot be marked. It's your responsibility as a hunter to know where that is. Yeah. And so if you access that land without permission, um, you're, you can be uh, cited for trespass. For sure. And so uh, it's really critical that you... You know, more so than ever, obviously, we want to be respectful of landowners. But at the same time, you you don't want to have something like that on your, you know, tarnishing your record. No, of course not. And I think a lot of it is probably very innocent. But innocence and ignorance doesn't plead out in a court of law, right? You got to know it's your your responsibility. And I I was going to add for Colorado, it's the exact same way. It doesn't matter if you know or not. It's the matter that you put your foot on it. So I see an app like Onyx or HuntStand as being, you know, vital, right? It's a tool we've never had before, which is kind of cool too, because it may open up some sections of public land that people didn't know how to access before, right? So there's some deep components of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's several hunters that uh, knew about those little secret spots and now it's not so secret no. anymore. And there's, so you, you know, double-edged sword there too. Exactly right. But you know, you know, the important thing for all of us to remember is that it doesn't matter whether they're hunters or they're, you know, just bird watchers. We want them out there. Mm-hmm. We want them looking at this stuff. We want them appreciating it because that's what gives value and why people are interested in conservation. Mm-hmm. And that's just just critical. We've got to make sure people still value that conservation. So in our closing moments here, you know, that's, that's exactly where I want to go with the conversation. Touch on that. Like what is, again, we kind of hit on it with the COVID uh, immigration 
emigration, you know, people moving around the country and a lot of them are settling in your area. A lot of uh, hunters, DIYers who are in the pursuit of what's, you know, now the 49 states super slamming. It, it's been a thing. It's a thing now. And more and more people are doing that. What is what is that pressure doing to the landscape? Have you is it measurable yet? Have you guys noticed anything in Montana? Um, is it too early? You know, and it's a really good question. Um, and I think it kind of addresses, uh, you know, the topic that I was speaking right. on here is, you know, how do you measure um, or what methods are available to measure um, things that we can do? How can we do that? A lot of times we perceive uh, changes and we perceive effects Um even when we're using some scientific method to try to measure it, uh, it can be extremely difficult to have a statistical evaluation that has sufficient statistical power to be able to truly detect some of those changes. We certainly feel like we have that experience at times if we're out there and we're going to our secret spot, a place where we've always had a good chance. And wow, lo and behold, there's two out-of-state hunters there. <laughs> and doggone it, we don't have, um, we didn't have the, the experience we were expecting. Yeah. And so our perception is that crowding has increased dramatically or it's it's now ruined. Um, we have to be we have to coach ourselves, uh, I think, a little bit to be tolerant of other people in the woods. Um, we want them to be there. And so, you know, are we seeing um, we're certainly seeing more and more people moving. There's certainly the perception more and more people are moving into the state. Um, our population is growing. Housing prices are going through the roof. Oh, yeah. You know, Bozeman, the median house price there was like $800,000 last month. Oh, my gosh. like, my goodness, I, I don't know how the heck people can do that. Um, but having said all that, it's still, you know, it's a good thing. You know, I look at, you know, if I could touch on recruitment, retention, reactivation, Please. here, just a real quick observation. Please. You know, Arizona had 7 million people. And at any one point in time, less than 1% of the population have a license in their pocket, a hunting mm -hmm. license in their pocket. If for Nevada, there were about 3 million, and it was probably closer to about 3 to 5% of the people. Mm. In Montana, there's a million people, and 178,000 people had hunting licenses in their pocket, almost 18%. If you look at it over a longer period of time with the churn over five years, you typically look at about half of the people have bought a hunting license at some point in time. Mm. Access is a challenge in Montana. Um, you know, there's a lot of private land in Montana, but there's also a lot of wildlife in Montana. And I think having that experience, having that personal experience with wildlife on a daily basis is really what triggers people and really helps that connection. So sure. I'm not saying that uh, recruitment and retention efforts are, are bad. I think they're great. I think it's one of the most important things we're doing, not because we need more hunters, but because we need more people that are committed to conservation and recognize the importance of it. And with those people, with our ability to have that that connection with wildlife in places like Montana, that's just a great opportunity for us to, to continue uh, building on that. I feel like that's a sweet spot, right? With R3 and it's not been bantied about, certainly it's, it's rolled around in my gray matter and maybe my motivations are selfish that got me thinking that, but the more, and you just, you said it, the more you think about it, it's like, maybe we don't need everybody to hunt, but we need more than 80%, that squishy 80, we're all constantly, you know, citing to be more vested. So if that, those are three efforts that we're constantly doing to get people into the field, 
maybe they're not having a gun or a bow in their hand, but let's get them in the field anyway and, and, and be consumers of what's out there and appreciate what's out there. Have, be, be more vested in your backyard or more vested in that resource, you know, not to take it, but if you, if you're taking it aesthetically, you're still, you're still using it. Right. So you um, opened a door for me because Brian made a point in his presentation. He was talking about the role of citizen science. And are there some real opportunities for people and WTF members, other people to help the wildlife agencies figure this out, Mm. right? If you're out there and you're paying attention and you know somebody else needs that information, is there a way we can... Is there a way we can use those people that we're getting engaged in nature to help us out from a wildlife management? Yeah, even, you know, typically when we're looking at uh, the citizen science, uh, we've got, uh, you know, Christmas bird count, the breeding bird survey. Um, the eBird is one of the most recent ones where you can upload information on things that you saw. Um, you know, there are there are plainly opportunities for wildlife agencies to be able to put that to work. And you don't have to be a hunter to participate in any of those things. Right. That's, that's, you know, again, it's, it's a kind of what makes adds value to our lives. There's very few, there's like, listen, 15% of the, of the American public classifies is distance from wildlife where they don't really care. Mm. Most people have some traditional value or mutualistic value that, that, you know, it endear, wildlife is something important to all of us. And so those opportunities do help us. And it's um, incumbent upon agencies to capitalize upon that. Sometimes agencies are reluctant to rely on that. Um, but there's all kinds of opportunities. We're always looking for ways to expand our ability to get access to funding. That's a great way to do it. Um, volunteer contributions are huge. And so, yeah, great point. I think it's easier to maybe that's not a, a nice term, but it's more for us accessible when you have like, you know, the, the the new term lately has been this this charismatic megafauna. Montana's got it. The whole Rockies seem to have it. New Hampshire, we have it in the moose. Our moose herd is depleted because of the questing tick in so much of our dollars rely on ecotourism and people coming in and just wildlife watching and skiing, but they get to observe all this. It's hardly any hunters, right? I think we're, I think we're sub 5% um, for resident participation, but there's been this call to action and people love the moose so much that you do have these citizens that are out there that will participate or how can we help? And they raise money and, you know, they're doing the best thing. So I almost wonder if like, these little microcosms, if we can almost tap into these people and utilize some of their motivations or what's getting them going on a national um, platform, because there, there's something there. I mean, Montana's got it again, New Hampshire, Vermont. That um, I think when I moved back to New Hampshire from leaving the military, we were giving out 600 moose tags. We're down to 11. Wow. Wow. That's a bummer. Yeah. But people care and people like watching their moose. So like, there's a motivation there. And then you got regular people that care. Like there's, let's tap into that vein and see if we can put it yeah, to work. I think about our own members, right? Yeah. We're passionate about wild turkeys and mm. turkey hunting. It's like, a, is there something else we could be doing besides funding? No. Yeah. Well, and and there's a lot of states that take advantage of that volunteer uh, contributions. I know both Arizona and Nevada, you know, as dry as those states are, um, you know, they have huge volunteer programs, uh, you know, through their, uh, you know, their the Wild Sheep Foundation, some of their, mm. their affiliates uh, within those states, and they do a lot of volunteer labor, um, you know. 
lots of volunteer exercises and works that's been done by the you know the National Wild Turkey Federation and virtually all of the Western states. I mean, just every state I've ever been affiliated with, they've done something, and so it's real important. But I think probably the biggest thing we can do um, is to encourage one another. You know, there there are times where hunters uh, look down their noses at people that don't hunt, mm. and there's times that people that don't hunt dislike what hunters may do and how they may engage. The thing we have to keep in mind is that we are more closely, we have more things in common with one another than the people who don't care about wildlife and would rather develop it. You know? I, I had that same conversation a number of years back with a, uh, a gal that was vehemently anti-trapping, anti-everything, but the trapping thing like sent her over the edge. And I told her that exact thing. I said, you know, we agree on like 98%. It's just the how we consume it part that we can't reconcile between each other. You mm -hmm. can't get there. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with you, but we both love the animal. We both love the resource. We love the, the places they, they live and exist and we want it all to flourish. Right. So we're, we are all in line except for like, I'll eat it and you won't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's, we're, we're running over. I know I got more people coming in. I, I could talk about this stuff for hours. I know y'all could too. Uh, Brian, thanks so much, Pat. Thank you very much for your contributions and being on the program. And uh, at some point, let's do it long form and, and, and talk about these things. I love the West. I love Montana and the mountains. And uh, I want to learn more about it myself and convince my wife to move out there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much. Very good. Thanks, Fred. We are joined again, and it won't be the last time, uh, Dr. Shortspur, as yeah. he says on his, his Twitter and uh, Instagram handles, and Annie Farrell. Farrell. Like Will Farrell. <laughs> and you're out of Texas. Yes, sir. Yeah. So this is cool because uh, this has given an opportunity to for us at NWTF to introduce our, our conservation staff, which don't often get to get behind a mic or, you know, other than uh, amongst yourselves and your, your colleagues. So this is a great opportunity to introduce uh, the regional folks and what you guys are doing on the ground. And, you know, uh, we can talk about Rio Grande turkeys in Texas. I got a, uh, as social media manager, I get hit up every time we post something, people want to know more and more and more. And a uh, fellow said, you know, uh, they were talking about the, um, the uh, research grants that were given out, I think seven, seven projects mm -hmm. that we allocated uh, 360,000 plus dollars to. And they said, uh, you know, why Texas? Isn't Texas doing well? We can talk about that if you'd like to answer that here and then I can hit him back. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I can. Um, it's it's funny. The uh, Dr. Shortspur moniker actually came from my time at Texas. Is that right? So, sorry, my buddy Jay Cantrell, Jay from, Cantrell South Carolina, from South Carolina. Just, just walked in. in. You want to jump in here, buddy? Um, but uh, I was... I was opening up a Twitter account because I hadn't, I mean, this was a long time ago. I hadn't done any social media stuff and, and some of the things we were seeing was kind of neat. And I was like, I'm just going to open a Twitter account and we couldn't figure out what a cool name would be. Yeah. So my buddy, Kevin Scow, who's there at Texas A&M and a, a friend of mine, Todd Snowgrove, who works for the East Foundation down there were just sitting around joking around lunch one day and you know we had all kinds of dr big spur and you know turkey captain and all that kind of stuff and then as a joke kevin's like oh yeah he needs to be dr short spur <laughs> so i said you know what nobody's at the time a decade ago nobody's gonna care 
what oh god that was a big mistake <laughs> yeah then so, you're stuck with it i'm stuck with it you it's know, your I, branding I now at, yeah i look at mike with wild turkey doc and then then i think about patrick whiteman um who's a, a recently minted turkey phd at the university of georgia that's wild turkey nerd and he's stuck with that that's for a good the rest of his uh, career so yeah no um yeah we can definitely talk about uh rios in texas you know um there's a long history uh in texas and, and turkey conservation and it goes back to you know uh the the Kleberg and the king family in south texas and you know the the hill country and uh, cross timbers regions being kind of the historic strongholds for rio grande wild turkeys within the united states and lots of the original restoration of turkeys you know i mean some of the capture methods for even moving around birds like billy don davis developed a walk-in trap that we use to catch most of the reels that we mm. tag so i mean a lot of really cool history there in texas and um you know they're Texas has weathered the storm turkey wise uh, as a state a little bit better than um, a lot of kind of the southeastern states. And, and part of that is is due to the fact that um, Rio, the Rio Grande subspecies, you know, is more of a semi arid bird. And they've always existed in this kind of boom bust secular pattern of population mm. dynamics because in the eastern United States, our climate's really constant. And, and sure. I know people think about, you know, global climate variation and climate change and, you know, all that kind of stuff changing. But, you know, we know when winter is. We know when spring right. is. We're going to get rain in Louisiana or Georgia. Or, you know, there's going to be a little snow in North Carolina occasionally. But in Texas, you know, they, there's kind of that joke. And I think Andy will give me here, you know, the next drought's the day after the last drop falls. That's when it starts. Mm -hmm. um, so Rio's basically exist in this system where precipitation is the driver of their population dynamics. Hmm. And once you kind of take that into account whenever, as, as Jason Harden, the Turkey program leader for Texas does, take that into account whenever they're developing regulatory actions and, and all that kind of stuff, it, it helps. And Texas is, I think, 98, I mean, whatever the number is, it's 90 something really high private land. Right, and, right. and private landowners have such a land ethic and a, and a conservation ethic there that they always do a, put a lot of effort into managing for turkeys and deer and quail and all that kind of stuff. So it's really been a, I mean, I've been working on Rio Grande's in Texas since 04 hmm. and, and continuously, and we've never stopped working on them. And it's been a great relationship with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and they've used a lot of the information on that we're collecting on habitat management, conservation, and and you know roosting ecology. We're we're just now starting up a fun project with a uh, Stephen Webb there at Texas A and M, looking at uh, these um, semi-arid riparian corridors and and invasive species coming in underneath our roost trees you know, the pecans and cottonwoods and that kind of stuff and, and seeing how that impacts turkey use of these historic roost sites. And it's going to be really, really cool over there. So there's always been a lot of stuff going on in Texas and, and it's poking that, me right now. And that's, that project I think, did get funded. Yeah, yeah. So Steven, yeah, Steven Webb ones. is yeah. leaving that and it's going to be, it's going to be great. And, you know, um, th there's all kinds of just stuff going on, you know, Jay, putting tags on birds at the Powderhorn WMA, which is coastal and, you know, mm. I mean, elevation to a couple of feet, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you you look at what they're roosting in, you know, they're roosting in the bush that's four feet above okay. the ground. So, uh, yeah, Texas has had a had a really good history. And, and I guess probably what you guys want to hear about is this little study we had done. Right. So yeah. and he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, so sure. Um, but one of the big questions that all turkey biologists, myself, you know, Jay Cantrell, who's jumping on here with us, everybody sitting downstairs is how do we manage regulations? 
such that um, we are providing enough opportunity for our hunters, but also not uh, negatively impacting the population. Right. And, and it's a give and take. Right. And, and NWTF and works with, you know, the, the technical committee and all of us work together to try and figure out what the balance is. And the balance changes. Right. I mean, it's not always the same every year. And um, there's a region of Texas where uh, there's a county demarcation and you know once you're on one side of the county line you can shoot four birds a year mm. but you're on the other side of the county line you can only shoot one and there was some interest in trying to provide uh, additional opportunity um in the one bird zone so add a bird for example um and we don't really know as brian wakeling was talking about earlier we don't really know how many turkeys are out there like to the number right sure so it's it becomes a question of what other metrics what other data can we collect to complement what information we do have on abundance to help the state agency texas parks and wildlife in this particular case make a decision so that's kind of where we were focused on for for this stuff so and what have you come to on that sorry um yeah um it's really interesting you know we had a lot of females about two times as many females marked in the uh a one bird zone than in the four bird zone and they nested a lot so you know i mean you you generally figure that every hen's good for about 1.3 nesting attempts a year and i know that's really weird to say with an average but you know most of the adults will nest twice most of the juveniles won't nest at all mm. so it averages out around 1.3 when you look at the the birds that attempted to nest in the one bird zone, a lot of them attempted to nest and they were horrifically unsuccessful. Hmm. Um, and and I should say that the one bird zone, it's, it's not a bad area. It's just it's uh, the landscape conditions um, are more rural agrarian. There's lots of pasture. Um, there's, uh, not a lot of, you know, Rio's are a rangeland bird, right? Um, there's lots of pasture. There's not a lot of riparian corridors. There's lots of ag, mm -hmm. which generally is good, but some of the ag's rice, right? Which is not exactly, I mean, nobody ever talks about turkeys plowing through a rice field. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> they really, really all attempted to nest, but they were never successful. The birds in the rangelands, kind of the, uh, historic Rio Grande like core area type of habitat a lot fewer of them nested but they were a lot more successful mm -hmm. when they nested and and the state's able to take that and say you know we've got fairly good because production drives the boat in all cases especially in texas we got pretty good production so i think we'd be comfortable keeping our four bird limit in this region but the production here doesn't justify allowing an extra bird right because you got to be able to replace and that was one of the, the big issues that Texas Parks and Wildlife had was were we at a level where we could develop, you know, replacement birds every year. And they don't they don't feel like they're there yet. We are working, um, you know, with, with them still on uh, better ways to estimate abundance, because with any study, it's a short time period. You know, you know, three years, four years, and you might miss events that could lead to greater population numbers that would then allow for increased harvest. So we're continuing the, the work because opportunity is really what we're talking about. And even if the opportunity is, you know, everybody gets their one bird and then there's a subset of people that can draw for an extra bird, that's still a win, right? We're still sure. getting people in the woods while ensuring that the resource is sustainable. Well, and so. as you said, too, when you guys were collecting that data, the weather was really good. Yeah. And, and that, like I said, it's, it's,
it's boom bust. Makes a huge difference huge in the Rio Grande. The weather was fairly consistent, but you know, we go into drought, then we then that one bird is what's saving us right. because you know we're we're able to keep up with the low production mm. that we saw. But I mean, also, and I, I jokingly said this. I mean, when it rains, Rio Grande poults just emerge from the grass. They don't even have to nest; <laughs> they just grow up from the dirt, right? Um, so it's really important whenever we think about the the context of a lot of these studies that you know the the typical two year master's student or three year PhD student worth of work needs to be wrapped up. Up in multiple students doing the same thing at the same sites over time so that we can disentangle environment with changes in population biology. And that's what most of us focus on pretty regularly. So that's why we're continuing the work with Texas and working in different regions, but all focused on, you know, keeping an eye on a uh, population size and trajectory. Socially, you know, you, you started touching on it. <clears throat> you go one, one side of the, the political boundary, you get four one side of the political round, you get one and the hunter population can't reconcile this. So obviously that communication strategy is incumbent upon us. Why have we struggled? Like that seems like for me listening, it seems like a very basic arithmetic. Like, listen, man, we can't kill what's not there. Like, I, I, don't, I know you want opportunity, maybe get in your car and go drive for opportunity because it's not happening here. Why, why is that so hard to like, to sink in for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, and I'm I not can... picking on that population <laughs> of people, but it's just like, you got to have some real talk at some point And like, it just, it's not going to happen. I, I think I'll take a stab at this. And Andy, jump in here. If you think I say something wrong. Um, and Jay, Jay's sitting here quietly, but he can also jump in from an agency perspective, even though he's way over in South Carolina and we don't really count them right now. Um, <laughs> I think that the problem becomes, when you think about getting information to the public, right, to, to the average hunter, there wasn't really or has historically not been a good give and take mechanism between our and I'm not criticizing state agencies by any means. So no one take it between, say, the state agencies and the individual hunter. A lot of the give and take is the, the agency develops their annual reports, makes them publicly available. And then the you know, you'll get poked and prodded by the avid hunters and, and that kind of stuff. But there's never really been a direct mechanism for the science team, which we right. kind of work with the agencies. I mean, we're not separate by any means, but we're kind of the hidden people in the turkey world and there historically hasn't been that kind of mechanism for that one-on-one -on -one or, or group to us interaction where a group of hunters or, or an individual hunter can email me or you know any faculty member or any scientist doing research on turkey and say hey i have a question on this but also it goes the other way i don't and, and i've said this a lot of times in podcasts you know my job has nothing to do with outreach no. I'm, I'm a teacher and i'm a research biologist right. my boss at lsu alan would not care one bit if I never talked to the public. Yeah. Not a bit. Right. But I don't feel that that's the role that we should be playing. So it has to go the other way. I have to be willing and all of us do have to be willing to do outreach with the public. And I think that we COVID kind of really ramped that up, like the whole people at home with nothing to do for Mike and I, especially. Yeah. Because, no yeah, because. <laughs> 
because people were people love information, right? People act like they don't want information, you know, or they don't want the right guy. But people love information. So the more information you can give them, the more engagement you get. The more engagement you get, the more buy-in you get. I know. And I think that we we lost that link a while ago between the science staff, and I'm not talking about the agency people, I'm talking about people like me at the universities and the public. And I think that we've slowly done a, or maybe done a better job through, through podcasts like this and social media, Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook, although admittedly I'm kind of less on Facebook, um, to to get information out there. And, and a lot of times, that uh, that relationship, that just that one on one, the the guy from Quero, Texas, who's in the target area for this actual study, right? That emails or sends me a, a instant message on Facebook talking about his property and what he can do to increase an available nesting habitat. You know, and he's he's got a nice piece of property, but it's a postage stamp in the big scheme of sure. things. But me being able to respond to him and say, "Hey, yeah, here are the things you'd want to do." Here's who you'd want to talk to. Here's some publications that might help you. I'm glad you reached out. Let me know what else I can do. Creates that um, legitimacy within the scientific community um, that people understand that we're all in it for the bird. We're not the the academics in the you know university that are just saying, oh, y'all need to do this and you're doing it wrong. It's like Mike and I are on the ground, just the two of us on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think that that's been a been a big win. Um, I think that some of the and I hate to bring it back to technology, but I do think that as technological changes for how we study the turkey advance, our ability to translate information to the public is easier. Of because course. Everybody understands what Google Maps is, right? Or, or you know, what Google Earth looks like, because everybody does that for everything. Well, then you start putting dots for where right. Turkey walks on it, everybody immediately gets a frame of reference. And I think that that has, over time, helped bridge that gap between, and I'll use my dad as an example, right? My dad, you know, I saw him on my way down here in Northern Kentucky, and he asked me, he's like, if I go turkey hunting in the fall, should I shoot a hen? You know, if a, if a hen comes out, does she it's legal? Right? And I said, no. And he asked me why. And I gave him a few reasons. My opinion, obviously, um, why. And, and, you know, we moved on. But I get to have that same interaction I had with my dad sitting in our living room with a thousand people sure. every month. And, and I think that helps. When you bring it down from the, the science clouds, right. you bring it down to a level that people can understand because science can get very complicated very fast. Oh, it's very heady, right? <laughs> so like when I said on the, I was a commissioner for our fishing game state agency in New Hampshire for a time and we would have issues or requests for funds or something like that. I, I didn't want to hear from like department heads. I want to hear from people on the ground doing the work and being able to take that information from the people that are actually getting their hands dirty and know this stuff inside and out and then uh, render it down into easily consumed media and be able to put that out to, you know, my constituency, which was like a- almost 140,000 re- people that, that I was a commissioner for. That's important. And then people, like you said, like you'll start getting that buy-in because it's not this ambiguous statement or this, this scientific abstract that, you know, they got to go to the library or go to the university and, and struggle to even find, you know, it's like, they just, they want it. They want it now. Let's make it available to them. We can we can do that as professionals and provide this stuff. And because of technology, it's not that arduous to do. You're, you're not unreachable anymore right. either. Yeah, there's a there's as we the group of us that kind of tries to do. There's there's a face with our name. 
right? It's not just Brett or Mike or other Mike or Andy or, you know, Jason is, I mean, there's a face with us and people recognize that, you know, when we go to a meeting and we do stuff like this, like, you know, at the symposium, right? We go to a meeting, we do so. They realize we're real people and we're in the dirt with our state agency biologists. We got all our grad students here, really the ones that are the heroes of all this. Mm. Because it's not, I mean, <laughs> I think and do budgets and accounting and deal with bureaucracy most yeah, of my yeah. day, right? But the graduate students are the ones that are really collecting all the data that whenever we come in here and talk, we're talking about, you know, your, your Sarah's and Ashley's and Nick's and Patrick's and Chad's and Andy's, you know, they're, they're the ones that are on the ground getting their fingers dirty and are chasing birds nonstop from January through December and doing all the veg and getting bitten by mosquitoes and ants and all the other stuff, you know? So it's, it's, it's good to be able to explain our process because I think that by educating people on the process, it increases their comfort level mm-hmm. that the process that we're using is correct. And that thus the answers we get from the process are accurate. Jay, you and I last night uh, were catching up. We had a fantastic conversation that likely could have went into the wee hours of the morning. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about this very thing about, you know, this the simple act of, of, of taking something that, you know, a textbook that is, you know, four inches thick and rendering that down to a PDF that you can just e- email off or e-blast to a population of people and how important that is to a communication strategy and getting information out. So South Carolina is not um, uh, exempt from this challenge that is going on. You guys have kind of been ahead of it, it sounds like. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you're spot on in what, what Brett was saying. We really have struggled in the past and getting information in the right format where it's accessible and digestible for the public. But I think we've, we've all made a concerted effort over the last few years to, to do that. But, you know, there's a lot of good information out there. It's just not in the right format. Sure. Yeah. So getting something in a PDF or in a short video or in a podcast or in a social media post where People can get to it easily and see it and hear it and, and digest it. It's, it's one of the big challenges. I mean, we're, we're all good at, as, as Brett said, you know, creating scientific papers or government reports. And then who's using it? So we're, we're trying to do better and, and work on communication. And, and, you know, most agencies now and have communication staff that are getting more savvy with these things too. And, you know, cause we used to just put out a news release or put something on a website or publish a, you know, reporter in a paper format. And, and we, we learned that people aren't looking at that. Stuff. Right. Um, so we then try to take that information and yeah, put it in a, social media or, or website format or something where people can get to it. Because as y'all said, without having that information out there, it's, it's hard for people to accept recommended changes, you know, cause all no. the science is leading toward regulatory or legislative change. And you're going to get pushback on those things. If people don't understand the impetus for they need that you know, why. The, they need the why. Yeah. They're, you know, they're not, going to be satisfied anymore with just saying this is how it is and this is what we're doing they're going to question it and mm-hmm. they need that background to understand the, the rationale behind your recommendations or your changes so yeah we as you mentioned we were up against it probably a little bit before a lot of folks in the country you know as far as these 
regulatory changes and season changes. And, and uh, we went down that road about four years ago. And there were some states that had kind of stuck their toe in the water there and done some things, you know, but that was most, basically, we were talking about this yesterday, I think Arkansas, um, Louisiana. Louisiana, and maybe Missouri. Yeah. But outside, you know, in the, the core of the actual Southeast, nobody had gone there. You know, people were talking about things, but so when we put a report out, you know, and a lot of it was based on the research that, that Brett and his students had done in South Carolina at the Web Center. Uh, so when we put a recommendation out there for our legislature, uh, we got a lot of pushback because, you know, it was something new to people, they thought. I mean, in our community, you know, within state agency folks and university people, we'd been talking about it for years. Mm. Uh, but this was brand new for a lot of people. And so there was a lot of pushback and a lot of doubt, and a lot of, you know, darts thrown at it and rocks thrown at it. So... But what we have seen now in the last three years is more, not only have more states taking these steps, so we're not out there on an island, uh, but the conversation has reached mainstream. And it's due to folks like Brett and Mike mm -hmm. and, you know, NWTF and, and then a lot of these other, you know, social media folks and platforms that have made this information, you know, the research information accessible. And so you've got hunters and, and land managers now that that get, you know, because they're hearing it, they're seeing it, they're reading it, and there's conversations going on. So what we're anticipating is, you know, when we take another bite at this and try to make some further changes, which it looks like are going to be needed, there, there'll be more acceptance and understanding because that information's out there and those conversations are occurring on a, you know, on a person to person scale, you know, and like I said, people message Brett and Mike and talk to them. They do that with myself and other agency biologists. And so it's, it's created a narrative and a conversation and, and gotten the information at a digestible level. And it's not just science mm -hmm. operating over here in some silo that doesn't reach the public. Exactly. So yeah, it's just, it's really, we've, we've done a, good job we can do better but we've done a good job in the last two or three years of bridging that gap and getting science in a understandable format for folks uh, you know and, and and kudos to to brett and mike and and, and other folks um you know I know, you know, Dr. Lashley and Dr. Goolsby are doing a lot of things too, getting things out on social media. So, you know, and as Brett mentioned, that's not their job, but they're it's evolving. Just like this whole thing is evolving and traditional roles and practices are, you know, the lines are blurring. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't become a biologist to think I would be producing social media content, you know. <laughs> um, we tell all, uh, so it's a joke generally within the wildlife biology community. You know, we don't actually, everybody thinks that being a wildlife biologist means you're jumping out of helicopters on deer and yeah. goats and tagging <laughs> bears and, you know, doing bird surveys when, when really most of the time what you're doing is dealing with people. I, I mean, the, the whole field of wildlife biology is trying to figure out that balance between resource sustainability and 
people, people being people management, consumption, people being harvest, people being fragmentation, growth of cities. It's, it's balance. That's what really what we're doing. So, so you end up dealing a lot more with people. Um, and I, you know, the, the joke in our department is whenever I teach my policy classes, uh, on the third or fourth class period, I bring in a child psychology professor from across campus and they talk about what the best way to interact with people is about (laughs) policy issues because you got to interact with them like they're seven or eight. Yeah. You know, not because because the people aren't intelligent, but because it needs to be digestible. Right. You know, so, I mean, if I start talking about binomial likelihood theory, nobody's going to know what the heck I'm talking about. But if I start talking about flipping a coin, you know, for live or die every day, everybody gets it. So it, it comes down to how you package it. And Jay's absolutely right. We've done a really bad job historically, historically. but yeah. we're, we're getting better. And, and the symposia, you know, here, um, you know, being in Asheville and here at the symposia provides an opportunity for all of us to get together and talk. And, and the, the meeting is great. Right. And Jay will back me up on this. You know, the, the science and everything is good. And he's been here. I mean, you know, you know, what's coming out of the pipe though, with all of these the papers are fine. But what really is important is the little breakout group of five people that are sitting in chairs in between sessions talking about, Hey, why don't we merge our data sets together to answer this larger question? And then all of our state agencies can use the same information. Yeah. You know, that's, I've had at least six of those meetings in the last 24 hours. Yeah. You know, it's crazy you know, how much I, you can learn. Yeah. When you're like, speaking to somebody else. <laughs> absolutely. Let, let's get, you know, we're, we're sitting with Mark Hatfield and Becky uh, the other day, just talking about better ways to merge NWTF and science together with the, the research aspect that you guys are, you know, funding a bunch of projects right now and how to better get that information out yeah. there. And so it's, it's, the the little offshoots of meetings like this where you get us all in a room is super cool. It's it's like in, when I was in sales, you know, we, we discussed when we get into sales meetings, like most of the business got done uh, after dinner at the bar. I'd say a lot of it's getting done in the presidential suite. Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> no, we were talking about this last night. Jay and I were sitting down. Yeah. Celtics game, the NBA finals is on. and But, I'm, you know, I'm concerned being from the Northeast. I think we touched on it yep. yesterday in our conversation that, you know, the Northeast is 10, 15 years behind the rest of the country. So, hey, red flags are going off all over the place. Let's make sure our, our leadership and agency staff and leadership up there are paying attention to what's going on down here. And, and there's that collaboration. So what's occurring in the South does not replicate itself up there. And, and by God or whatever, we can curtail that going forward up there. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brian Wake hit on that this morning. It's like, you know, the, the, the school of experience is not the, the most affordable one, you know, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. the, the tuition cost is pretty high. If you're just depending on learning things by by having your personal experience and doing it, you better talk to somebody, you know, learn from somebody else. Yeah. You know, don't, yeah, we don't all need to make the same mistake. That's right. You know, if somebody has done something and, and learned from it, you know, head that off, you know, learn from other folks. And, and that's what's very powerful, as I mentioned, about coming here, not just the, the presentations and the data, but talking to folks from other states, other parts of the country and comparing notes and, and, or comparing, combining information. Um, I mean, that's the most powerful thing we can do. Exactly. You know, turkeys don't know a state line. Nope. You know? And um, so that's kind of where we have to approach it. And I think we've done a better job instead of everybody operating in their own little world is to try to say, okay, what are you seeing? What are we seeing? You know, and because everybody's doing things different as well from a regulatory standpoint. And you might can kind of learn 
you know, what's working and what's not. And so I think that that collaboration is good. And, and it's not just, you know, these symposia that occur every few years, you know, we get together a couple times a year regionally. Um, you know, we have regional working groups of agency biologists and NWTF biologists and, and university researchers. And, you know, so we collaborate, um, you know, in person once or twice a year in virtual meetings throughout the year and email correspondence. So I think that's something that probably a lot of hunters don't understand or don't know that we're, we're talking to other states. Yeah. You know, we, we're, we're not just in our little world and, and have blinders on. We, we know what's going on around the region and around the country uh, because we talk on a regular basis. And so I think that's important. Now, everybody has their own challenges at home. And everybody has different systems that they're constrained by, um, but but we're all trying to kind of go in the same direction. Um, so it's it's great to get together these kind of things. Like you say, it's the the strategizing and the brainstorming that that happens, you know, in the evenings and it, it breaks is um, it's really where the work. You can't is schedule that. It's invaluable and it's, and it's organic and it comes from a place of passion and, and so many great people getting together and yeah, and so get a lot of work done. We're glad that we're kind of getting back to in person. Yeah. You know, the last couple of years has made that challenging. <laughs> We've had virtual meetings, but in a virtual meeting, it's not don't same. get that, you know, after hours mm-hmm. um, interaction. And so, you know, that's, we're, we're glad to kind of be getting back to that because we got a lot of, a lot of problems and a lot of issues and a lot of concerns and the best way to solve it's, you know, getting together and collaborating. And the running theme, at least in my uh, observations and through these conversations that not all hope is lost. You know, it sounds scary to, to the everyday uh, guy and gal out there on the landscape going out there, you know, a couple times in the spring when they can. It's not Armageddon. Yeah. Now no, the sky's not falling. You know, there's still plenty of turkeys out no. there, but we're we're you know, we're seeing some. You know, we've been seeing problems for years, and we're trying to get at it. And you know, so yeah, it's a be concerned. You know, be open to change. Exactly but, right. But don't panic. You know. And um, you know, and I was speaking with a, a a grad student last night, and I said, you know, I think I, I feel encouraged because there's a lot of very intelligent people working on this and there's a lot of very passionate people that really care and and there's and we're hunters too you know and that that gets lost sometimes i think you know that and i hate to say it but i've been in this field for a long time and most you know a lot a lot of turkey hunters any kind of you know deer hunters whatever i think feel like there's a disconnect between researchers and agency biologists and ngo biologists that they they feel like they're somebody else they're not mm. you know we're one of them we we hunt we get it you know we're we want the most the best for the resource um and so we're coming from a place of passion it's not just a job it's something that we think about and, and brett says this all the time you know some people think about turkeys during turkey season or just before it you know he's thinking about turkeys 365 days yeah. a year and so we're this isn't something that we just dabble in you know this is it's a lifestyle oh. and um so that you know, I think that is encouraging to know that there's a lot of people that are not just trying to work on these problems because it's their job. They're serious about it mm-hmm. and passionate about it. And so nobody's going to rest until we figure something out. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's why you guys get called professionals, right? Because if, if, if professional baseball players weren't passionate about it, I wouldn't have a Red Sox team to root for. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have passionate professionals in the turkey uh, conservation space, uh, we'd be screwed. Right. I, w- so I wouldn't mind having a Red Sox player's salary. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, I'm passionate about turkeys, but you know what? If somebody wants to pay me that kind of money, I'll stand in the bullpen all day long. So, um, Parting thoughts. I want to come to you, Danny, because uh, it's been kind of quiet on the side of the table. Yeah. I mean, how can I <laughs> speak over these two here? Right? Um, but, you know, from an NWTF perspective, we kind of divulged into a communications conversation instead of just over the research that we had originally started talking about in Texas. But, you know, from our perspective, what we can always provide more information mm. as long as you're breaking it down into easily digestible you know, little tidbits. Here's a number. Here's a, a fact. We can always provide more information after that. And so, uh, Brett being able to break down that research into you know little little tidbits that he can post on his social media. He can always provide the papers later, scientific yeah. papers. And I mean, if anybody wants more information on anything, we can always provide it. And so, for for my state specifically, if we're doing research in the state, I, I have one pagers for. I cover Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, and I have one pagers about all of our projects. All of any research going on anywhere that the super funds have gone. And so it's just one page PDF that anybody can use. You can use it at banquets. Um, and if anybody wants more information on that, then they can, I can provide them all the numbers, uh, history of projects and all of that. You and I are going to have a real long conversation one of these <laughs> days on this podcast where it's just you and me. Cause that's a, I want to talk about Texas being the, otherworldly planet that I consider it for what it is. I didn't know you had all that other space. So at some point we're going to, we're going to have a long conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, Cover a lot, but you know, there's a lot going on in every single state. I don't know that people know that. Um, And there's research going on in all of my states as well. I mean, there's a huge research project in Oklahoma. We're starting one up in Nebraska. Um, We, I mean, scientists, not me, but um, the the Nebraska state chapter wants to contribute. Texas state chapter has contributed to research in the past. Oklahoma is contributing. So, I mean, from an NWTF perspective, we are involved as well in all of this that's going on and yeah. we just have to share it with the world. Jay. Um, you know, I'm just, just happy to, to, to be here and, and, and continue this collaborative effort, you know, just what's right here. You know, we've got an agency person, myself and, and a university researcher and NWTF folks. And I think that is critical and moving forward for this, for this bird is to have these collaborative efforts um, because everybody brings something to the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and as we've been kind of talking here last few minutes, communication and messaging is, is the key to me right now. You know, obviously the science is important and the regulatory side of things are important, but if we're not communicating well, what are we doing? You know? Mm -hmm. So, and, and for, for me as an agency person, you know, that's our biggest problem is trying to get, the science into the the regulations and the, and the laws and so um yeah i'm just just glad that that we have these opportunities and we can get together and and y'all can help get the message out and uh look just look forward to more of that i think that's you know everybody's kind of on that same page now we're just trying to get the public informed yeah and uh so it's it's you know Great to start that or, or keep that process. Yeah, rolling. Ride the wave. It's, yeah. Cause it's there. Doc. 
Oh, you're going to have me at least one more time. Yeah, we are. Yeah, I mean, I think Mike and I are going to just be on here for the rest of the evening. So, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll defer to to Jay and Annie on that kind of stuff because I'll be back later. Well, guys, go get you some lunch. I appreciate you coming up and uh, being able to convert uh merge two two interviews together had a nice talk thanks so much mm-hmm. see you later absolutely and see you guys around thanks for all right. thanks, thanks, thanks for under the visionary leadership of founder johnny morris bass pro shops and cabela's is leading north america's largest conservation movement their partnership with the national wild turkey federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across america The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com slash conservation. Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer. Follow the link. Go through that link to get the organizer with your membership. Do it now. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. So we have in Matthew Gonnerman. Did I say that right? Yep. Matt you Gonnerman. man, you main black bear. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's a doctor, Matt Gon. Doctor. Technically. I think everyone here is a doctor. That's kind of, yeah. I don't, no. I don't, uh, I don't doctor, push doctor, the point. Doctor, doctor. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and regional, are you? Regional biologist? What's your official title now? New England, well, New England district biologist. New England district biologist. He's got all of the finest people. All the finest people in the land. Matt Devona joins us. So, your talk. Are you Matthew (laughs) or Matt? Matt's fine. Matt uh, was, let me dial this in here, the variation in wild turkey nesting phenology at the northern range limit. Basically, stating is the season set up right to recruit turkeys in the north. Do I got that? Pretty much. Perfect. Uh, it, to maybe not so uh, I don't mean broad. insult either. I'm just trying to. No, no, no. The, you got it right. Uh, you got it right. I just think we won't say uh, whether it's properly set up for recruitment. But I will say that the current timing, uh, we looked at the timing of nest initiation and related it to when hunting pressure is occurring mm-hmm. because we want to avoid um, knocking incubating hens off of nests and potentially losing nests that way. And we also want to inv- avoid disrupting breeding males and also want to avoid illegal hen kills. And so when you take all of those things into account, you probably want to time the peak in harvest to occur during the laying of the, initi- the initial mm-hmm. nests. Um, and so that's what we looked at. We lined up incubation, nest laying, and, and um, the total harvest that we had, the numbers from Maine, and looks like Maine is hitting that window pretty much exactly. Cool. Um, which is 
very, very convenient for Maine. <laughs> so was the study Maine only or did you go into the neighboring states? No, we stayed exclusively in Maine. We did have study areas that encompassed both the historical range of turkeys in the south, uh, the two southern counties, um, as well as uh, a, a larger data set from the center of Maine and the Bangor area, which is um, we did that because that area has a, a really nice gradient of the different land covers available sure. in the state. So you have ag, uh, commercial forests on either side, and then you got Bangor right in the middle. Right. And you can just kind of, the turkeys can access all three of those. And so we can like look at how they're choosing and things like that. And I didn't talk about in this paper, but we have like, we have, we're going to have at least 10 papers out from this project at least. Mm. Um, we've done a lot of research. Um, I got to plug uh, Stephanie Shea, the, uh, uh, the other PhD on the program. She's not here, unfortunately, so she, won't, she wouldn't be able to join you, but um, she's the disease ecologist and hmm. she has, uh, she did half the work and she deserves half the credit. Cool. Yep. Good job, Stephanie. Doctor. Doctor Stephanie, Stephanie Shea. Um, the, 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 the backpacking we did a handful of years ago, was that a part of this at all? Or were they tracking those hens? That was in the, was it Gorham area? Very likely then if you were yeah. putting transmitters out in Gorham, that's where we were putting our transmitters out. Very cool. All right. Yeah. So I get to see the back. So I, I, I used to be the regional director in New England. Oh, okay. So um, that first round of, of telemetry yeah, or backpacks wearing and grabbing a few male birds as well and, and leg banding them. Oh, okay. Uh, we did that up at that site and it's cool to find the back end of it. Yeah. I mean that, that first year, I think you were probably out that first year and um, you know, that was one of the ways that NWTF helped assist with this research project mm -hmm. was to um, supply some of those GPS transmitters that you get to go out there and see yep. them get strapped on the birds and, and sent out in the woods and stuff. So, you know, it's pretty neat, Matt. You know, we hear a, a lot from hunters, um, you know, why can't we start this the season earlier and stuff? And I think your your research really kind of gets at the heart of that, where you're trying mm -hmm. to find that sweet spot where you don't want to be out there hunting birds too early in the season where you can be disrupting that breeding, right? We want to be sure that we're protecting that investment for the next season. So, you know, see that laid out there where, you know, you're actually following those birds and you're finding out, you know, when they're actually laying nests or laying eggs and when they're actually incubating those nests, you know, kind of hit us on, on that we're sort of threading the needle right now, at least. Um, but you bring up some interesting points in your paper, like there's you know, potential future environmental variation or changing climates and that mm -hmm. sort of thing that can potentially shift those dates around. I thought that I that think was, they, I think they will shift those dates yeah. as, so I think now, uh, if you read the entire, the entirety of what I did in Maine, there's a theme in that, you know, a lot of the, one of the major pressures that's driving ecology in these Northern range limits is the, um, snow depths in the right. winter. And that's going to be essentially the earliest a, a hen can nest is limited by that. And as Correct. soon as that's not a limitation anymore, who knows what the turkey population in Maine is going to do. Which northern Maine woods, Jackman all the way exactly. up to Fort Kent, you're still dealing with a very, very a small number of turkeys out there that could explode given a no. any sort of resources available in the winter. Yeah. Like right. So to give you a little context, we have um, a site in Munson, Maine. Uh, it's, it's very rural, very uh, inland and and pretty high up um, compared to like Bangor. And so there's um, they have snowpack very late into the season. Mm. Um, we had turkeys that were trapped in Munson that traveled essentially in the winter and then traveled 
20, 15, 20 miles north to go to their nesting ranges. So these turkeys are having to travel very long distances. Migratory turkeys. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. we wanted to call them, well, depending on your definition of migratory, sure. we have flirted with that idea. Yeah. I don't think the larger scientific community <laughs> would want us to be starting to categorize turkeys as migratory, but they are, there's these seasonal movements. Um, Eric Blomberg, my advisor, has drilled that into my head. I'm going to okay. give him a shout out too, but uh, <laughs> Eric, I, I use the right term. Uh, seasonal movements, uh, but between these winter and nesting uh, ranges could decrease, might decrease, uh, which would affect survival. You know, these, these, when you're moving across a landscape that you're not familiar with, very easily could affect your survival. So that's, I mean, for me, listening to you say that, and I know we're playing semantics and, and maybe it's not semantics. You want to articulate the, the verbiage, right? Because there's connotations that come with that. If in fact, a bird is go transversing the state from one area to the next purposely like when it comes to uh, protecting habitat that's important because if it has a, a warm weather range and a cold weather range and you start especially in the paper mill country that's you got to pay attention to that right mm -hmm. yep and and you know the language i use i had initially like described it as dispersal and that's associated with just juvenile movements usually so yeah when you're when you're working on the wording of these things you really have to be careful because mm -hmm. while it may not seem important in the moment like when you're communicating you know that's we we have these concepts that are very similar but are ultimately distinctly different ecologically that require us to be a little bit more specific about the wordage yeah no, I, I get that um that's good. I didn't mean to jump in there, but I was just, it's exciting to hear this stuff, oh. especially where it's in my playground. Well, so. it's, it's nice. Yeah. Especially where it hits us locally and stuff, but you know, it's, it's nice to see a good Turkey research project going on in new England. Cause mm -hmm. there, there hasn't well, really thanks. been any in, <laughs> well, in so, recent years, you know, and, and you guys will hear this as this, <clears throat> all these recordings are put together and we edit them out and have a, probably at least a two, two or three episode series out of all this information. But what I keep coming back to is a lot of the stuff we're hearing uh, in, in, in real time here on the ground is it's pertained to the decline and in, in a lot of the Southern states and stuff like that, where we're at in new England, we're roughly 10 to 15 years behind all these people. We're still enjoying the heyday this golden age of turkey hunting and, and there's habitat. And it's just now, I think the last couple of years, we're seeing a lot of outside pressure, right? Cause people are chasing the 49 state super slam. Uh, I didn't certainly hurt the, uh, the come to Maine when I was talking about on the podcast back in 2007 and what the, the opportunity was the all day hunting, the multiple bird harvest. Like I think we did a pretty good job of letting people know to come up here, uh, maybe too good of a job because now there's, you know, out of state plates everywhere. Right. So, um, are we seeing anything about that or, you know, I guess, so two questions being posed here. One, are we watching, and I assume we are, what's happening in the South and, and collaborating with the folks that are here so that we don't experience that up there because we got a good thing going, right? Uh, and the other part of that was, you know, are, are we seeing an uptick in, in pressure throughout the entirety of the state? I mean, the region, I mean, anecdotally, I can make observations and say yes, but you're the, you're the doctor. So to answer your first question, um, I think that this symposium is like, the exact reason why we uh, to collaborate with these other scientists, this symposium is incredibly important. I have uh, 
found out about pretty much every project that's going on across the entire eastern seaboard right now. And because of that, I think there is a lot of opportunity to kind of gauge, you know, um, specifically what I was thinking is nest initiation across the eastern coast. You can look at this and then uh, look at nest initiations. And with climate projections, you can actually say like, okay, well, Maine's going to look like Virginia in 50 years. Are we going to see similar nesting phenology? Are we going to have to make the similar changes to adjust maybe to uh, what Virginia's harvest looks like or something like that? So um, that's getting at what you're talking about. It, it's becoming way more prevalent. And I think that these symposia are crucial for facilitating that because you don't really, especially in these larger conferences where you go to, like as a scientist and I'm talking to songbird people and reptile people, it's just like there's not... There, there's not as much opportunity for collaboration because there's a different mm, species mm -hmm. and things. So here, I mean, hopefully we'll have a ton of stuff coming out region wide yeah. or whatever, um, as everyone has GPS tags put out and stuff. But uh, what was your second question? Well, I'd like to step in before oh, yeah. we get to that. It's, it's just, you know, I think, I think this symposium has been very focused on, um, keying in more on the, you know, the known unknowns and maybe the unknown unknowns. Right. So, you know, some of these fundamentals of, how many birds do we really have, you know, in the landscape and mm -hmm. how many hunters are, are really there. And I think, you know, this wasn't really touched on in Matt's paper, but, but one of the, the key things that Matt was addressing was to get a more foundational number of how many birds might be on the landscape oh, and, um, and how, you know, what our harvest and survival rates look on and stuff. So, I mean, man, I don't know if you can give like the, the 10,000 foot view of what you were doing with respect to that, but I thought that, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So, um, part of my uh, dissertation was building a population model based off of harvest and, uh, survival estimates. And so we looked at harvest numbers since the most recent major change in uh, regulations, so 2011. So, uh, and the model uh, essentially uses the harvest numbers. Um, and if you know the proportion of the population that is being harvested, you can just divide the total number harvested by the rate at which they're harvested and you get an estimate of abundance. And so that's what we did. The model is way crazier than that explanation, but at its core, that's what's happening. And when you look at those numbers, the actual population numbers in Maine have been uh, pretty stable the past decade. Mm -hmm. So maybe um, what might be happening is instead of uh, a lot of talk here has been that maybe we overshot that carrying capacity, whatever you want to call it. And we've been, and a lot of populations have been dipping back down below and then are kind of leveling out. It maybe Maine never overshot dramatically um, and has just kind of leveled out much quicker than other populations. And I, I can't speak to the causes of that. The model doesn't account for those types of things. Um, but as far as raw numbers and what we are seeing, that's that it's, it's pretty stable. So much so that you're putting birds from Maine into East Texas. Yeah, we, we yeah. shipped Maine, uh, Maine birds to Texas. I can, as a Texan who went up to Maine, I can only imagine <laughs> how miserable they were going back down to Texas <laughs> and experiencing that heat. Um, but, uh, it, that was very exciting. And, and again, um, just another example of collaboration across like very long distance. <laughs> yeah. No Having to go that so far. your paper, I think was important and I'm going to do my best main impression, right? Because I used to feel these calls. I know Matt does too regionally is that I see these birds out there before St. Patrick's day out there, they're all strutting and they're breeding. The breeding's all done. Why can't we be killing them by Easter in mid April? And your paper tells it 
Why? Because that would potentially be, uh, well, I guess I would say that anecdotal evidence is never going to give you the entire picture of what you need to know to make those types of decisions. So while you yourself might be seeing something, the larger landscape might be dramatically different. And while I know people generally care about what is happening on their property, um, we really have to remember that animals don't know that's your property and they exist um, absent our boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so um, I guess to that, and then if you look at the paper, it's like we're, we're trying to reduce, we're trying to help the population. So any, and if we frame it like that, I think it's a lot easier to, it's not that we're limiting your options. We're helping everyone's options. Um, I think it's fantastic. And I think it's a bit of research that needs to be out there. That's why we're doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. We can very likely talk about this in a very long form down oh, the yeah. line because people in that region, I don't know. It's, it's not just our region. I mean, it's across the country. People have these, we get back to traditions, like the tradition of fall hunting. And, and then, then it kind of comes to the sense of entitlement and, and people up there, like they get very in their way. And I, I love the people up there. I live there, you know, I've yeah. lived there my whole life. But we we have these tendencies. And when they get fixated on something, that becomes the science. And it's like, no, this is the science. You need to read this. And I think your research is is timely and it's important. And if people are taking it seriously and they're avid turkey hunters and they declare themselves as such, they'll take what you're saying and apply it and and, and basically stop. Stop their backyard biology and, and listen to the, the, the research and listen to the professionals because you guys, you've done it. And I think that that's the authority. And then I, I, I might, I would, I would say that I would still like to hear from people. No, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Don't, you know don't stop saying. talking to scientists. In fact, talk to scientists, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but just be aware that we're talking to a bunch of people and we hear a lot of different things. Yeah. So while it might be great for what, you know, you, you might be seeing one thing, but if we have 10 people telling us something different, yeah. like, and it's hard to really assess. And that's why we usually, we like to, we want to hear and we want to, so that we can then know what questions to ask. I guess a better way to put it from the layman's perspective is that your data says why the seasons are set up the way they are and to trust in that. Well, I think, you know, I think the people, you know, the, there's different stakeholders in Maine, right? There's a complicated relationship with turkeys in Maine, right? And, and <laughs> you know, I think turkey hunters are pretty satisfied. You know, maybe not everybody, but I would say hunter satisfaction is pretty good. It's in really Maine. good. And I would really. say that, that you know, there's, there's these questions around... Um, you know, nuisance damage within an agricultural community or in residential areas. And gosh, they're even the deer hunters, right? Or, you know, they kind of raise an eyebrow and stuff when they think about turkeys. And, you know, I like your podcast because, you know, I, I'm looking for an opportunity to, to combat some of these misunder, mistruths and misunderstandings that I, I don't think that turkeys are direct competition with deer for resources. And that's why I'm looking for you know? guys like Matt. And we can have this longer conversation because I definitely want to go down there and we do not have time. Well, let me let me let me make it short and sweet then, because I, I think that um, what what Maine is trying to do is find a way to satisfy these multiple stakeholders that want different things out mm. of our turkey population. Yeah. Some people want more turkeys. Some people want less turkeys. And what what Matt's work has really done is set the table for a science based. Yeah. You know, foundation of how we're going to manage turkeys in Maine going forward, which is how it should be. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, Matt, the work you've done has provided a really strong foundation of like, when, when is the best time to have our turkey season? How many turkeys are we really dealing with? What does harvest look like? What does survival look like? So, man, I'm, let's, let's do a longer conversation. Oh, hell yeah. Future, yeah. No, this, so this is definitely going to happen. Just so. a little teaser for my postdoc. I am, so I'm staying on, I'm working with main data still, and we're, we're taking that population model that I just mentioned, and we're going to um, forecast under different management regimens into the future. So mm. we can, we will be able to say, you want to hunt this many turkeys? Okay, well, this is what's likely to happen to the population. And so if people are really eager to just, you know, I want to shoot five birds and all right, if that's what you want, <laughs> then let's see what happens to the population. Seven. Right. It, I, I, can, I can put it in the model. I can do that. And I mean, not easily, but <laughs> right. I can put it in the model and we can see what happens. And so there's, there's, Plenty of room for conversation and 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 uh, compromise. Mm. Um, you know, there's uncertainty in my model. I I I yes, I think we should first go with the data in the model personally, um, but there's always going to be uncertainty. It's sure. incredibly complex. System. I cannot wait to see what that bears out and what your modeling does. And if it and if it shuts me up, because uh, I get on my soapbox about the five bird fall, I think it's obscene. Uh, but that's just me. I'm just one guy. The, the question is is are they taken i mean yeah that's a longer conversation much longer. it's like it's it's uh, the fact that it's even there is obscene to me i know there's not people going out there taking five yeah as far as i understand it now i'm yeah. relatively new turkey hunter i only went out recently with uh, kelsey sullivan mm -hmm. uh, our state yeah, cool. yeah he took me out so. last year for my first time uh didn't get anything but i uh i uh saw and heard some turkey so that was more than more yeah. than enough for me um <laughs> i just completely forgot what i was saying it's okay um it's fine because well, we got to yeah, wrap we're done. up. Yes, yeah, so I'm probably... gonna I'm gonna go off. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we were talking about that. So yeah, I don't need to talk about that right now. Again, I am not a scientist or a doctor. I'm just a guy with a microphone, and I got thoughts and feelings. And an opinion, yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> and a strong opinion about that one. But hey, this is you know these are things that are being talked about here, and you know if if you're seriously considering closing fall seasons in most of the country, you know it. Could that be on our doorstep in a decade? Well, in your modeling, could say one way or the other. Well, well, I, I just you know, I, I often wonder. I see what's going on in the, in the southeast, and I always wonder in the back of my mind: are we, are we being sensitive to to what's going on in the landscape? Are we are we going to avoid some of those potholes that we've seen in other parts of the country? And I, I like to think because of the work that you know IFW and UMaine have done. Um, and the work that we're helping to support that, you know, a lot of the biologists, I hope, are we being conservative enough with our seasons? I feel like in New England, we've been pretty conservative with how we I liberalized agree. our seasons. And maybe we've learned from some of the missteps in other seasons. And it, it makes me feel good that, you know, I, I see in a lot of states, they're question about, hey, do we need to be starting our seasons later? And, mm -hmm. you know, seeing some of these results, it kind of assuages some of my concerns, that at least for right now, at this point in time, um, we might be in a good place in northern New England. Yeah, I would so, agree. I would definitely yeah. agree. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, we will you. definitely connect again. Yeah, anytime. So. I don't mean to be so uh, crazy about the five thing. It just uh, strikes no, me. No, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts on it some other time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you. And I am joined by Missouri regional biologist. Do I have yes, the sir. final right? right? John Burke is here along with... Dr. Michael Byrne. Dr. Michael, doctor, doctor. <laughs> I was joking earlier. Everyone's a doctor. <laughs> doctor. Doctor. And uh, Not you that. gave a presentation on nest site fidelity and nesting success of female wild turkeys. 
Yep. Tell us about that. So I didn't collect any of this data. I think Nick might have collected actually some of this data off screen there. Um, but this is uh, taking data that's been collected for a number of studies done in the Southeast US, um, pulling out birds where we had two consecutive years where we knew where they nested and if they were successful in nesting mm -hmm. and trying to tease out, do they show fidelity to specific nest sites? If so, is that related to previous nest success? Um, and is that predictive of future nest success? So like when I see the same Canada geese come by year after year after year in the same little mud puddle and they have all their babies, like that's their spot. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Cool. I, I'm the I'm the I'm the color commentator on this show, and I, <laughs> I dumb it down so everyone can understand what we're talking about. So no, that's cool. So what is, what have you found? So in terms of fidelity to a like specific nest site, let's say a turkey nests by that log one year, is she likely to return back to that log next year? No. Cool. <laughs> so that makes it hard for you guys. I mean, as far as like if, if it would be infinitely easier, I would imagine if if a bird uh, was partial to one piece of dirt and went there year after year, you could seemingly go back there and, and survey and but potentially. So the interesting thing is, so they didn't seem to show fidelity or, you know, proclivity to come back to a specific nestable year after year, mm -hmm. but they did seem to show this proclivity to return to the same sort of region of their home range each year for nesting, okay. right? So let's say they've got their annual home range that they use for all the things they do during the year. There seems to be some evidence that, okay, they've got a portion of their home range where this is where I'm going to nest. I'm not going to nest under that tree every year, but I'm likely to nest within this portion of my home range. I found a, a this is completely anecdotal, but in my travels, there was, and I can't say if it was the same, same bird, but for three years, there was a a nest in this one little spot where I hunt in the same spot for three years. Bird was on there. I don't, again, I don't know if it was the same bird, but it seemed like a good spot. Hard to say. Yeah. Oh God, you've blown my science completely out of the No. I <laughs> well, the management implications too, if there is nest site fidelity to a patch or a specific site as, as managers, what's the significance of that? So it, it's hard to say. I, I would say almost in terms of the fidelity aspect, it's more of cool ecological knowledge of the life history of of this species which is always a good thing to know mm -hmm. um from this study what came out i think is most interesting from a management perspective is we tried to figure out okay what if, if i nest close to where i nested last year does that influence my success in the next year right because with the whole fidelity the idea is you gain familiarity with an area and that improves your ability to you know perform reproductively in that area um you know it's you know your house well and you're going to survive and do pretty well in your house right just because because you know it there's also the thing where if i'm successful in this spot well maybe i return to that spot because that means mm. i'll be successful in that spot in the future um we didn't find any evidence of that but when we put all the things into the stew to figure out you know what makes a turkey successful in that second year that we monitor her it wasn't where she nested, but it was if she was successful at all in that first year. Mm. So the first, we monitored for two years. The first year, if they were successful in terms of they were able to hatch at least one egg, they're about on average about 63% chance of them being successful in that second year. For the birds that failed in that first year we monitor them, there were only about 8% chance that they would be successful 
mm. in that second year. So it kind of seems like they're, and again, we we could use more data to sign of back this up, but there might be some small portion of the female population that is really responsible for most of the reproductive output. And so from a management perspective, that could absolutely have some implications if that bears out, um, because there is a subset of this population that we really need to keep alive as long as yeah, possible. Yeah, man. So I, as you're <laughs> saying that, I'm thinking about the heavy emphasis I've heard recently about the dominant Tom and the one Tom that breeds all the hens. So it's like, holy crap. I mean, there's a lot of pressure to make turkeys and it, you think they're just out there making babies, making babies, making, and, and, and it's, they are not. And it's like. Yeah. It's a small segment of a species that's doing all the legwork. Yeah, it's a lot, that's of, a lot of pressure. Yeah, <laughs> got that male, and then those few females. So, I mean, so what I've heard here, you know, and, and I haven't heard it so much, but it, I'm in this concentrated environment of professionals. Is that you know, there's this. It seems like there's this idea of set season, so you're not killing the dominant tom, right? So because that dominant tom is, I guess, the equivalent of a herd bull and an elk population who's doing all the breeding, right? That's how I interpret that. So I don't know how you possibly identify the, the dominant Tom who's doing it all, but um, I, you guys have your way. So if there's that, and then there's the dominant hen who's the, the one doing the recruiting, I'm like, my mind is being blown in real time here. Yeah, like, that's it, a lot. It's hard to say if she's a dominant hen. Well, like maybe so it's the wrong like, way to put yeah, it. But. It's just... <laughs> She just knows how to hatch a nest, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it could be just in the way she behaves when she's at the nest site. You know, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about how their recess behavior might affect their probability of success. So mm. there might be some females that just know how to get, just get done it. consistently. Yeah, yeah. You what? might might share with the numbers. Is that one of the things that impressed me is that there's just how small a percentage of that, the, the number of birds that you actually looked at and how many of those were actually successful. Yeah, so we had 32 birds in this study, and only 10 of those 32 ever actually hatched a nest. So the, my, the, the natural thought pro pro progression here now goes to um, fall seasons and the ability to take hens. And even more so in my mind, I'm like, oh, you're making an awful strong case <laughs> without making it on purpose that maybe we shouldn't be shooting hens. Yeah. But I'm not asking you to answer that. You don't yeah, have please to. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Put me in that position. I won't put you. You won't be getting the hateful tweets. We need, we need a lot more data before I can no, say no, that. No, no, for but, sure. Yeah, but no, that's, that's that's where the mind automatically goes, right? You know. Well, and, and I think from a management perspective, in addition to that, is that is are she is she that good or is she that lucky? Mm -hmm. And if we're measuring the habitat components of those those hens that chose that particular site, can we duplicate that and expand that mm -hmm. so that it, more hens are lucky? So, so, so what is the commonality? What is required? You know, break it down baseline Turkey 101. What does a, what does a, a successful hen need in, in, in her habitat to, to pull this off? That's a grip man. If we knew that. <laughs> so there is a standard. Variables. No, I mean, okay. the more research comes in, the more it's just like, we can't find the common thing mm. habitat wise so no, that's interesting um it's one study will say it's this another study in the same region different time mm. something completely different there's been some other talks today kind of harping on the man is it just in terms of habitat what is the effect and we don't know i can't give yeah. you an answer of like yeah. okay well in this region they need 
you know, yeah. this type of vegetation. It's not like a piping clover that, you know, needs this beach front and they are going to be there every year and they're going to shut half the beach down because they're going to be a bunch of little fluff balls running around. Like yeah. You can't, you can't predict that. <laughs> I guess fine. You find clutches of nests and knee high grass. You find it in a down log or the one I referenced earlier is, um, it's this round mound of, of crushed stone with mm. duff in it. And they've taken to that. None yeah. of those are the same. We've got some nests where you can see the hen sitting on the nest from 40 yards yeah, away. Yeah, we've yeah. got some that are next to buildings. And we've got some that are in what you would kind of call, this is classical habitat. Yeah. And in terms of who's successful, it's it's kind of a scatter shot. Some of each of those fail and some of each of those do well, which kind of brings it back to, um, I think it'd be interesting for future studies to really try to harp on really concentrate more on studying individuals over time. So a lot of times studies, we get a good amount of data over the course of a season, and then we study a new group of birds the next season because, you know, either the GPS transmitter went out or birds died. Mm -hmm. um, if we can get more studies that say, okay, we're going to look at this hen, I'm going to look at this hen over two years, if possible, even longer and see, okay, is that hen consistently successfully producing young? Um, and if so, what is she doing? Yeah, <laughs> right. The other hands aren't doing. Hey, what's what's yeah. she got? Yep. I wonder. Well, so if it's not an environmental thing, is it like? Are you? I, again, I I have zero knowledge of any of this, so that's why I'm asking the questions. Is it is it in like the biological makeup? Like, are you guys drawing samples and you know going that deep into the bird and seeing if there's something in their their chemistry, their biochemistry that makes them good? We haven't gone that deep yet. Okay. Um. So. You know, we're trying to tease out behavior, um, obviously. It's probably cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so we're, we're doing this. So the study we're doing up in Missouri right now, the, the transmitters, when the bird is, is incubating on the nest. So we're thinking that how they act during that incubation period might have an effect on their survival. Mm. Some hens just might know how long I can be away from a nest or when to fight a predator, when sure. to, to get away from a predator. So we've got it set up. So the GPS units we have now, whenever the bird gets active and moves around, it flips on the GPS. So every minute we get a burst of 10 GPS locations. So we have almost a continuous track of every minute, 10 locations of where the bird went. So we're going to be able um, and we haven't got to start analyzing this yet because we just started doing this last year, but we get these really, you know, basically this is the track the bird took when it got off the nest. It went exactly here. It went in that direction. It visited this pond. It stayed X long and it came back to the nest, you know, in this direction at this time. And so we'll be able to get sort of this kind of fine scale information on how do hens behave during this time. And maybe we'll see that hens that behave one way or do something are just different. They're built different than the hens that consistently fail. The longer these conversations go on, the more complex these birds become. And I'm it's saying that with a, right? with a smile, <laughs> um, but it, it, to the larger point, I mean, it's, and I keep coming back to it. There is no simple fix on what a lot of the hunting public has questions on right now in real time. And it's infinitely more intricate. Mm -hmm. And I think people just need to accept and understand you're not going to get a simple answer in a year, in two years, in three years. And and that's okay. Like that, that's just being honest. Like temper yep. your expectations. We're gonna you guys are all doing 
the best you possibly can with what, with all the resources and then the fundraising and the, the projects that you're being funded. Like people aren't just sitting on their duff, not doing stuff. You guys are doing amazing work. We're trying. We're doing the best we can. Um, well, the, the underlying theme of, of, of this symposium too, and a lot of the papers is it's, it is all production related and, you know, we're, we're facing Turkey declines pretty much across its range, yeah. but, and everybody's looking for a harvest solution to a production related problem. And that's, that's the frustrating thing is, is biologists and managers is, you know, we're, we're, we're focused on production and the hunting public is focused on, you know, what regulation can we change yeah. to put it all back to the early 2000s? Yeah. And it just isn't that I don't simple. I like the answer. Yeah. Or at least the immediate answer. And then when you go beyond that, you're like, okay, what's, what's the silver bullet to fix production? And, you know, the more we're learning, it's like, uh, <laughs> no such thing. Sure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, it doesn't exist. You know, a lot of people say, okay, well, just knock down all the predators. Okay. What? So you get rid of raccoons. So now the rat snakes do it, you know, um, or, you know, tell me the one habitat thing, the one habitat thing I can do. And it's like, oh, there's a certain suite of things that you might do to increase the, you know, the probability of success. You this know? show's audience well knows my stance on it. And I'm going to mm. beat the hell out of this drum is that you can kill every egg eating fur bear. Do everything you possibly can extrapolate them from the landscape. Uh, North American model sign uh, wildlife management be damned. You still can't stop what's happening in the sky. We will never control the weather. Yep. So that is the one, the one biggest variable in my non-scientific opinion that you got nothing on, man. God, bigger creator, the cosmos, whatever it is up there, we can't control it. So do do all your things, find your silver bullets. That That's the one you can't solve for. Yeah, can't solve that. And then, you know, we're looking at some other things as well. So into like the brood rearing period in Missouri now, and there's been a little bit of this done in Georgia, but we're sampling things like temperature on the ground and different mm -hmm. vegetation types, um, you know, for, for brood survival is there thermal issues with them thermal regulating. We're doing a lot of insect collecting, arthropod collection in different habitats um, because, you know, as, as you probably know, those first few weeks of life, those pulse need to eat a lot of bugs, they yeah. eat a lot of protein. So is there a limiting factor with the availability to get grasshoppers, right? Sure. So there's all these different moving parts that interlock with each other in weird ways. And it's well, and and you bring that up, you know, turkeys are what we care about. And that's what's, you know, front and center in my mind. But turkeys are not the only birds in decline. And almost all birds at one point in their life are dependent upon insects. Big questions. Very small answers right now. And we're not going to do much more in about a minute. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're going to solve this. We're going to solve this. We got a minute. Let's do this. I, uh, I do appreciate you guys carving out the time. I know it's um, a long day of sitting and listening. To I could sit there all day and listen to it. I know you guys do this day in and day out. So maybe it becomes a bit of a grind. But um, I have... I've come away with more things to think about and more, learn more in, in three days. Uh, and I'm grateful for it. So thanks for your time. Thanks for the work you're doing. And um, you're always welcome to come back on and, and we can solve the problem in about two hours. We oh, have okay. more time. <laughs> I was going to say, learning all this new stuff got you thinking. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, no, I just, I just think, uh, I think again, it's turkeys aren't simple creatures and, and we need to think critically and be able to, look at ourselves um and be introspective about you know i keep saying uh, turkey hunters bluffs are getting ready to be called 
Mm-hmm. You know, we've always, I think a lot of us have said, yeah, if it comes down to it, you know, I, I would give up X, Y, and Z to make sure that the species propagates. Okay. Well, we're, we're at that point in some of the areas. So are you, your card still good? Because we're calling. Them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there it is. Thanks guys. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank awesome. you. Hope you had fun. Yep. Uh, welcoming in, uh, Regional biologists or district biologists? District biologists. Everyone changed. So Ricky yeah. Lackey, uh, you're Florida. Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. And WTF, district biologist. Yes, sir. And then uh, Nicholas Backner, doctor? Uh, Bakner. Bakner, not sorry. Doctor. Not, not, not doctor. Not yet. You're the first one. He's getting close. Though. I'm getting there. Nice. Uh, no pressure. If, if Mike Camberlin... <laughs> gives me the go-ahead yeah you work for him <laughs> yep oh cool Mike, mike's my advisor actually oh. i did my master's degree with brett so i've had the pleasure of you, getting you, my mind blown constantly oh, yeah. by both of them so so your um, <laughs> your presentation on the recursive movement patterns of the eastern wild turkey broods in the southeastern united states was heavily combed over yeah yeah <laughs> very good tell yeah. us about that so um what what i found is that these birds are making repeated visits across the landscape and within the literature base, it was kind of a conflicting view. Like some people said, Hey, these birds are moving all around with their, with their broods. It's more beneficial because if you keep moving, you have more adequate resources on the landscape. These predators aren't going to pattern you because everything's out just like you as a hunter. You're out there trying, you're trying to pattern a bird. Yeah. 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 So the predators are out there, but then Bill Healy kind of countered that. And he said, these birds are kind of staying in one place, but this was always split. But now we have the advent of GPS technology. We can go and we can dive into that and mm-hmm. see what they're doing. And what we found is they're they're repeatedly visiting areas and spending time in useful areas. Do they do the same pattern? Like when I was coming up in turkey hunting, people said a turkey will do like this four leaf clover pattern throughout a 20. Well, it's waking hours, right? It'll start here, pitch out, go feed, come back around and go back in their same roost tree. Are they, are they kind of it's setting patterns like that is, or is that not happening? It, it's really dependent on the bird. When it, I mean, who's leading yeah, them. Roosting yeah. is a whole nother topic. Sure. And yeah. I mean, like that's actually my dissertation always for forming around these recursive movements. And basically what I'm finding is you have different personalities with these birds. Even when you go out, I mean, you experience that sure. as well. It, sure. There's different personalities. You have some that just hop around. You have some that maintain a home base, but why? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What I found interesting, Nick, was, you know, you just, you just mentioned the conflicting theories of moving a lot, but also staying still a lot. But your stuff kind of shows both. Like they have a pretty high residence time when they get to where they're going. Oh, yeah. But then they do move like a day or so later, 38 hours later, they're heading to another spot and then they're staying there for another 36 hours or whatever it is. Yeah. And so obviously they're keying in on stuff and they're they're you know, they like what they have, but they also end up moving. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's all dependent. I mean, you got to think of what these poults are eating, too. They're eating yeah. insects. Yeah. They got to that source is a renewable source and they're just keeping on going. They got to find it. Yeah. And that gets depleted because, I mean, a lot of times I was talking to a lot of people about maybe these are like magnet spots that all these per- you have a big cluster of birds there as well. And poults actually form up together. You're depleting that resource, but you don't want to. You don't want to spend too much time at that spot because yeah. that's when you start getting patterned. That's when they start. Yeah, they start keying in on you. Yeah. So, so from a land management pers- perspective, let's talk about a little bit about the the 
the habitat types where you found most of the movements. Yeah. Um, Cause that's important, you know, from a management perspective. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, and I mean, we can't drive this down everybody's throat enough and it, it's open treeless areas in this early successional habitat that's managed with prescribed fire. It yeah. creates a diverse insect community, diverse plant community species. And another very important factor that I hit on with that is them maneuvering around. Mm-hmm. They have Absolutely. to move before that 11 day mark. Those birds are on the ground and they just have to, they have to find ways to navigate through the vegetation. If they don't have that predators are going to come get them. And then even they have risked the injury of their cells. Yeah. So the, 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 the lack of mobility because of their size, they can't bust through, you know, thicker vegetation. So yeah. the, the fire removes the duff. Whereas if you're mowing, or something else, it's not removing the litter. So that's still hard for them to move through. This that open ground with above head cover. Exactly. At, yeah. You know, waist high and lower, basically. Yeah. Yep. So it, it's a real mix of habitat that these broods need. I mean, you need that insect abundance there. You yep. need the vegetation height. You need concealment from predators. So in your, in your, um, presentation you you had a question that was kind of an unclear question about the opening mm-hmm. and then there was the, the pine stand around that opening um and it did show there was more use in that opening i'm assuming that was some some type of a fallow field it, it was a fallow field right. and then they planted in clover right later so um on the other the other broods not just that one how much higher was the percent of use in the in the open treeless areas to the low basal area of prescribed fire pine stands. That's what we, we got to go and dig into that. Okay. And that's actually what I'm doing with my dissertation and going in and looking at that. Okay. But, uh, do you the, think the, that the pine stands were actually utilized? A lot. And yeah, yeah. A lot. Because I mean, Louisiana, Georgia, where we were at, mm-hmm. that, that's the main management tool on the ground is right. that maintain with fire. Right. How much do you think, cause you said this, you mentioned at the end, you're actually building in the temporal aspect of but uh, within the days of the brood so how much do you think that's going to impact that movement you've been looking at all right now what i'm looking on it's a complete flip once those birds start roosting in a tree they become more of a general species you have a very yeah. specialized species whenever that little chick is on the ground right like you, you oh, can't do yeah. anything about that yeah yeah and at the same time too that you know they can't buy, they can't thermoregulate themselves either during that same time frame so they need specific canopy cover that's another thing that right. i'm actually looking going into. back to the weather thing you mentioned yeah. they have to have they, they have to be in an area in an environment an area where they can stay warm enough to right. survive through the nights even even in the south 70 degrees if they get wet yeah they may die yeah yeah for sure so there's 100%. a lot to that you know that's so that brood rearing habitat you know, it's interesting. I'm not trying to take this conversation. Do it. No, go, go. Um, Brett made the comment and multiple times, like the hen, the nest site seemed to be fairly random. Yeah. But these brood, broodering sites seem to be, they seem to be very particular about the vegetation structure. Yeah. So it's like, it's like almost two ends of the spectrum mm. with where the nests end up. To where they actually need to be once they hatch yeah no exactly it, it becomes more specific we actually yeah. published some research just in journal wildlife management area that found like this woody cover like during roosting yeah they're keen in on that they need to find those places yeah and that's what i tend to look at with my dissertation is actually those transitions between roosting and walking because it's almost like there's connectivity between these patches mm-hmm. and stuff 
for them yeah. to be moving. Yeah. There was a fella some years ago down here, um, Joe Huddo. Oh, yeah. The, he was the guy that he imprinted on he the imprinted birds. He imprinted the birds on his yeah. book. And then Illumination of yeah. Flatwoods. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you ever talked to him, but I mean, it seems like he's down in that area. And he North went Florida. through that whole cycle yes. uh, of having chicks on the ground and then to the point where they just they went to roost on their own. They figured they just transitioned and went on their own. It's crazy. So Bill Healy did that work it as well originally and, and yeah. imprinted birds on him and what he i have this sit down i don't think mike or brett ever put it out but they went and sat down with bill and they had they gave me this gopro video and somehow they screwed up there was no video on it it was just sound mm -hmm. just them talking but i sat there and listened and this was what was interesting he said you know those poults are actually leading that female so could mm -hmm. they be actually directing the movements it's crazy i mean it's kind of crazy really? to think about but yeah well, they're the one. Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, I can see that because I mean, they're the ones with the most need. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They have a specialized, they're you know, in a specialized state. They can they yeah. have a different capturability of insects and yep. stuff and they need to focus in on that. Yeah. You know, they're precocial. So they leave immediately. So the hen had, there's obviously, there's obviously a teaching and learning process that the hen is relaying to them. There's gotta be right. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, they're also the ones with the most need. So they're going to be, you know, going at the, you know, the resource that they, that they have to have. Exactly. You yeah. know, and she's teaching them all the while. I'm sure. I've never considered that. So, as you're saying this, I think of, of human infants and yeah. right away, right out of the womb, what does a baby want to do? It wants to get to its mother's breast yeah. and feed. So that baby is, is really leading the mom because it's telling her exactly instinctually what it needs. And then a baby, human baby gets to a certain point where it's like, yeah, graham crackers and SpaghettiOs. It's all good. Right. And yeah, you kind of yeah. watch them do their thing. As long as you give them their shelter and, you know, clothes and such, it's uh, yeah. Huh. Oh, it's just a weird observation, but I just had yeah. that thought cross my mind. No, it's really, it's really crazy to think about. You got to, You'd go in so many different directions with this turkey research and just taking different stabs at things. And I think that's what needs to happen yeah, a lot of the times. You know, your this particular work and your dissertation and, and the, the recursive movements of you know, these broods, like I think the habitat that they're utilizing, you've you've kind of just reinforced some of other other projects and other research that has shown that open can and canopy pine forest prescribed fire, you know, active land management practices that provide that, you know, that structure that they need. Um, so, you know, if you had to make a recommendation to a landowner about how to get more of that on the landscape, what would you recommend for that land in, in the Southern Pine, you know, ecosystem? I would recommend like prescribed fire and ju just juxtapositioning it okay, in a way for yeah. them to utilize the best. Cause I mean, they need, and we'll see on my dissertation. It's it's turning out really cool. Once, like I said, once they hit those trees, it completely flips. Right. But those hardwoods still become important. And when we did some insect work yeah. and went back, there's insects in those hardwoods as well. Yeah. But you need those flight feathers and stuff too. Right. But tran really juxtapositioning habitat in a way. Yeah. So you mentioned the juxtaposition, which is kind of where I wanted you to go. Do Did you look at any any scale of like the prescribed fire in any of what you looked at 
what you know so i haven't I've, you I, haven't looked at the no, scale that, that's okay. coming up that's okay. coming up yeah right. i'm working well we know it's important we yeah. don't know exactly to what extent but we i mean we know that you know that juxtaposition with those small poles i mean it has to be fairly tight in order for them to have those variations and structure that they need in such a short period of time there's definitely going to be ending up and I know we tried to get at this with some of the work that Chamberlain and them have been doing, but there's a different shape to fires. I mean, you got to think about the shape and what that bird can actually go in and use because, you know, you need concealment somewhere. Oh, yeah. if, you, if you run out of concealment and you burn large blocks, I mean, yeah. it's not yeah. going to be good. Right. But I, I believe that we're going to find whenever we get to that level that, yeah, there's definitely a size that's yeah. going to be that's going to be best for them yeah yeah so you're bringing up fire and i have yet to talk about fire okay great so now i want to i want to i want to i mean we don't have a lot of time but um i guess the biggest concern and stuff i see you know especially as, as a social media manager for nwtf whenever we put stuff out socially about fire or prescribed burn study or good habitat manager we're doing somewhere um we inevitably get a lot of blowback mm -hmm. on that stuff, yeah. right? We have a we have a response. We have some some good research that bears out why we support it. But the biggest bit of feedback we get is people burning the ground while the nests are on the ground, and then mm -hmm. inevitably this same picture that's been going on for five or six years it keeps it's the same one that gets recycled from this burnt out nest. Can you please, uh, in, in in a very layman sort of way, explain? you guys got this under control yeah. why you choose to, to burn when you do and and understanding that yeah there may be some collateral damage but in totality you got to figure it out you can go first uh, yeah <laughs> literally we have over 600 700 nests now in our database mm -hmm. i think it's something like two percent yeah. of them have been burnt i see and literally it's these these areas that are three to four years aged they don't use them to nest. Mm. If you do, so the, you're burning up a spot where there is no nest. Correct. Yes. Yes. There's there's no birds that are going to use that. There's no way for them to walk through it. It, it. It's unusable land. It becomes like, for instance, in Louisiana, it all grows up in Yopon. Yeah. And if you or, ever go in that yeah. stuff, you you can't yeah. walk. Or in, in Georgia, it's sweet gum. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So so go ahead. But but overall, like, it's better to do it because once that sweet gum and stuff starts regenerating. Yeah. That's years, that's good man. For nothing. Yeah. That, that, that's years before you can maintain that. Correct. Yeah. Because COVID kind of slowed that stuff down with with the fire and everything, and mm -hmm. now we're back there. We're trying to get everything. Yeah. So what Nick's saying is, is that if you're if you're managing in the South with fire correctly, you are on a you are more more than likely on a two year return interval fire, and the blocks that the birds are wanting or needing to nest in are the blocks that you you are that are not scheduled to be burned so if you're burning at the right scale the timing doesn't really matter because they're nesting in the blocks that were burnt last they're not year there. they're not correct there. yeah yeah so it's really that simple yeah. that is the most simple poignant explanation i've got the date and i'm so glad we got it today. yeah yeah in under three minutes there you go. So there it is. Yeah. It's the simplest thing of this most complicated bird all week. Yeah. It's important. I, I'm saying it tongue in cheek, but I mean, it's important for people to hear that because, again, basically the, the end user in the supply and demand equation that we have in our hands is that the hunters want to be able to see turkey recruitment and they want to go hunt them. Exactly. And if they think that the, the researchers and the professionals are out there killing them 
just for, mm. for fire, like they're, they're freaking out, but your explanation answer clears all of that up. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. So chill out. We're not burning nests on purpose. <laughs> they got it figured out. For sure. Yeah. Um, closing remarks. I know we got the, the two docs coming in here in 10 minutes. Oh, you're in for a time there. Yeah. yeah. This will be the third yeah. time they've graced the, yeah. the podcast. So literally in, in two days. So. It, it's been a great time here. I mean, th- there's been so much research that's been presented. My mind is yeah, mine blown, too. like constantly. You know, I, it's been great coming back off COVID to have this obviously delayed. Mm-hmm. You know, it was supposed to happen what year ago or at least. Right. Yep. Um, just being around all of these people in this business it's it's humbling it's cool it's awesome you know you learn a lot you get confused a lot mm-hmm. right because it is such a complicated topic and you know, we're in a you know interesting time with the turkey but it's um it's just a, a humbling experience to just be able to you know be a part of it yeah it's it's great having this many passionate people about yeah. this yeah. like I don't, I don't yeah. know. I barely go and, to bed like at 2.30 a.m. because I'm up all night yeah. talking about turkeys. Yeah. And the great and, thing I mean, is, too, you know, I mean, 99% of us are also hunters, too, you yeah. know. So we're, you know, it's it's a it's a cool group. Yeah. Guys, thanks for coming on. I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. As with last week, uh, this week, plenty to come away with and plenty to, to digest and talk about and get your your gray matter spinning. Um, I certainly get a bit passionate <laughs> about the turkeys in my backyard. So uh, thanks to Matt Gonerman for being a good egg and and hanging with me uh, <laughs> in that portion. Um, you know, five turkeys, a lot of turkeys, man, and to have at, I guess, in the fall. But uh, like I stated, I'm just a guy with a mic, so but. We all have a vested interest in it and it all comes from a good place, right? So I I definitely will be hooking up with Matt in the future to bring more conversation there because I, I think it's I think it's a good conversation to have. Takeaways, man, uh who knew so few hens did all the work? Um and then what a fantastic, simplistic explanation as to um how our professionals set fires, why they set them where they do, and the fact that they're setting them in places where there are likely no pulse because they simply can't get through. And that is the whole point of the practice, right? I just, I really appreciated uh, Nick's explanation on that. And and I, I don't know why I haven't heard it put in such simpler terms, but it made all the sense in the world to me. So if you're concerned with stuff like that, I mean, definitely get involved, have conversations. We have district and regional biologists all over this country. There is somebody email or a phone call away that can answer questions and and there's plenty of good conversation and questions to be had so so ask them uh it's it certainly we've seen over the years especially with social media can be largely unproductive uh but you know you go right to the source and just ask your questions man you can get a whole lot of answers pretty quick and you may learn something or you may come away with a different perspective but i mean ultimately there 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 there's an explanation out there for for a lot of this stuff so anyway i i i remain uh, excited and 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 uh, continue to to roll some of these ideas around in my mind, and, I, and I'm fortunate uh, to have the experience to sit down with some of these these great folks and talk with them. I'm looking forward to seeing how some of these studies that are being continued what what comes of them, and certainly when appropriate, we will bring you that sound. So that's our uh, part two, part three. Uh, next Thursday, getting back on regularly scheduled programming uh, schedule, we will be bringing you a wrap up. Dr. Chamberlain, Dr. Collier, 
Mark Hatfield, they sit down. Uh, I'm there, but largely uh, just kind of a spectator and kind of let those guys go. And then uh, we're going to bring you some sound. Uh, Mark Hatfield and myself are going to have a conversation. Uh, the beginning of the symposium, uh, there was a group of folks that got together about uh, turkey hunting safety and, you know, industry standards and kind of where folks are coming down on on certain safety issues. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, to that conversation with Mark and bringing you guys some of that as well. And that will wrap out wrap up our, our symposium coverage three weeks of it. So I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Do leave comments on social. Uh, if you got questions, you want to follow up, uh, we can certainly make uh, contact available to you for these folks or, you know, tag them up in a question on, on our, our Facebook or Instagram or wherever you're seeing the stuff or hearing it and, uh, you know, make become part of the conversation. It's cool stuff. Plenty to uh, be involved in. Folks, even though it's summer, it's hot as Hades out here. My gosh, I think the entire I think the entire planet is like in triple digits. Uh, so if you're hanging out in the AC, you want to find something cool to do maybe after the sun goes down. We got a cool new website. Communications department, IT department have just done a fantastic job and really worked so hard uh, to completely revamp our web presence. So uh, it's it's got a, a better looking uh, appeal to it. Uh, aesthetically, it's pleasing, easier to navigate. So uh, being able to find local fundraising banquets, outreach programs in your area should be a breeze at this point. Uh, plenty of lifestyle stuff there. You can go on the hub, uh, check out things there. You can find old uh episodes of the podcast if you missed them go there check that out so do go on there explore give your feedback largely it's been uh, quite positive uh, and that is because of the hard work of, of those professionals they've done such a great job there and it looks great so go check it out that's it for this week guys we appreciate you as always subscribe rate where available almost all podcast platforms you can subscribe Get a quick, quick little uh, notification like iHeart. They're always good about it. Boom. New Turkey Call All Access podcast available for your download. Uh, and that comes out pretty much within an hour of publishing. So that's helpful. You'll never miss a an episode there. And again, we're we're competing in a, in a very crowded space and, and, and crazy algorithms. Your participation, your 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 subscribership, your ability to give five star ratings where you can certainly helps us uh, get this important information out. I mean, this is this is the most current information on turkey conservation and research that is that is available right now. This is it. You're you're in it uh, as we sit here uh, in mid-July 2022. Y'all be good. Be safe out there. Whatever you do in your summer adventuring, take care of each other. Love each other. We'll talk to you next week. So long. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation.
Are you ready to renew that membership or sign up for NWTF membership for the first time? Well, now we got a deal for you guys. We're going to hook you up with an NWTF trunk organizer. This thing is great if you're boating, gardening, attending a baseball game, going on a picnic. The organizer is a ideal way to keep your items organized and within reach. Featuring small zippered cooler with insulation. Use the packs, not the raw ice. We don't want leakage. Also, the organizer includes three slots to keep items separated and two small Velcro pouches located on the front for quick access to special items with a bonus clipping mechanism on the side to secure your organizer. Follow the link. Go through that link to get the organizer with your membership. Do it now. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear.